Hey guys, welcome to Startups of the Week, Season 3. I'm Sophia Kanthara, and I'm here with Owen Thomas. Hey there. And Alex Wilhelm. Hey guys. And this week, we'll tell you about a company that's been called the Netflix for Books, a company that makes fertility treatments more affordable and accessible, and a startup that was acquired by Rapid7. That's all coming up on Startups of the Week. So first up this week, we have Scribd, which is in the news because it just announced a new partnership with the New York Times. Um, So Owen, do you want to tell us a little bit about Scribd and what it does? Well, I think of Scribd, first of all, they are one of the very earliest Y Combinator companies. Y Combinator is the startup factory behind companies like Airbnb and Dropbox. Scribd, it strikes me, has never quite achieved that, that level of success. But they've hung around, and they've tried various different business models. I remember them as the YouTube of books, mm-hmm. um, you know, a place where you could go to get a lot of stuff uploaded, uh, maybe not always respecting copyright. It seems <laughs> like they've kind of come around and to a different business model where you're subscribing to things that are properly licensed. So from a YouTube <laughs> to from an early YouTube to more of a late-stage Netflix in their business model. That sounds like a really smart thing to do, to not get sued out of existence. Um, Mm -hmm. My question is, how many subscriptions can the average household have? And, you know, are people people going to pay the real Netflix and Hulu and YouTube Red and Sling and HBO Go and the the Disney thing and Mm -hmm. Spotify and the Warner thing? How many subscriptions can can one person have? Yes, but I think Owen that those are often kind of con- like uh, overlapping, like Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime Video. But in Scribd case, isn't it kind of a separate product and therefore maybe set aside in terms of budgeting from those other things? Like I don't think YouTube Red or the Warner whatever or the Disney Channel's uh, online thing can be to Scribd. It's books, you know, and that feels like a separate category to me. And also, people who read books often spend a lot of money on that hobby. So maybe there's a little more disposable income here than we think. And people who read books also tend to read newspapers like the New York Times or, knock on wood, the San Francisco Chronicle. So (laughs) I think bundling up subscriptions is smart. I mean, essentially what we're seeing is after cord cutting, there was this kind of like Cambrian explosion of new services you could subscribe to and everyone trying a lot of of things. Single services like HBO Go, and, um, and you know, new skinny bundles like the Sling TV uh, service I mentioned. Um, with Script, I see like this combination of, you know, let's add the New York Times to the mix as a smart move to um, offer more, which means you are generally stickier. You are you have more consumers renewing, less churn. Um, and, you know, it's just it's a little more value. It's less cognitive load on the on the uh customer who, you know, has to think every month when they get their credit card bill, oh, do I need all of these all of these subscriptions? Right. But in this case, I'll just throw one more thing in here. The, the, the combination of Scribd and the Times for 13 bucks a month just strikes me as incredibly cheap. Um, Scribd, if I understand the product correctly, is about nine bucks a month. And then the Times, I think, can be like 12, 13, 15. So together, they're just a remarkable deal. I want to know how Scribd, which is a startup we've known about forever, landed this kind of agreement with the Times, um, a public company. Uh, it strikes me as kind of a coup uh, for Scribd. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's a good value. Uh, Sophia, what did you gather from Scribd on uh, why they're doing this deal? And Well, they've been moving into this um, 
into this kind of area for a while. So back in, they added audiobooks in 2014 and magazines in 2016. And just last year is when they started adding, started having articles from like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal available. Um, so this seems like kind of like a, a more natural, you know, partnership that they would go into. Absolutely. I would point out that they've got big, big, big competitors. I mean, the biggest. They have Amazon, which has Audible for audiobooks, Kindle for regular books, and Kindle subscriptions for a bunch of periodicals, including, I believe, the New York Times. Now, that's the Kindle edition, and which is a little different. It tends to be a little more stripped down. Um, but I think you definitely have to watch out for Amazon. And of course, they already have the prime subscription monolith. Now, there's also Apple, which bought a company called Texture, which wraps up a lot of magazine subscriptions and could very easily add newspaper subscriptions as well. We see Apple as a big player with Apple News pre-installed on iPhones. You could see a subscription layer being added to Apple News very easily. I would be worried if I were Scribd mm -hmm. uh, because those are two ferocious competitors who see that content distribution business as pretty key. Yeah, well, we'll have to see how that pans out for them, I guess. But we're going to have to move on to our second startup of the week, which is called Future Family. Um, and I spoke to their CEO and founder, Claire Tompkins, um, earlier today. And basically, Future Family came out of, um, or it's a company that was born out of, you know, her own struggles with fertility. So it's a, they call themselves kind of another like Netflix for fertility. Um, where it's, it's, <laughs> it's certainly a subscription motif. Yeah. But Sophia, this, the story that you... Uh, shared with me earlier today about Claire, it's really affecting what she went through. Yeah, absolutely. So she, um, so Claire Tompkins, um, she went through six rounds of in vitro fertilization and had three miscarriages and spent around $100,000 um, on fertility treatment before she um, had her daughter, who's now about three and a half years old. So she knows um, just how difficult and expensive the process of IVF and you know fertility treatments can be. And so she basically set out to start this company to make it more accessible um, for more people because she, you know, she used to be an exec with Sol uh, with Solar City, and she said, you know, fortunately she and her husband were able to pay for it, but it was still expensive when you, you know. Um, oh, that's a, an enormous expense. Yeah, and she was saying, you know, the number one barrier um, for women who or couples who want to go through fertility treatment is the cost. The reason they don't do it is because, you know, they can't pay for it up front. So basically, you know, how it works is um, fa or future family will basically front the cost of all of this, and then you pay them back, you know, in monthly installments, which, you know, for the basic package, the average is around $250 to $300, but then there are add-ons if you want to include things like genetic testing or travel, that kind of thing. And it'll match you up with a clinic. They partner with... Um, about 250 clinics, I believe, in all 50 states. And they're also, they do what they call like concierge services where you can contact um, support for any questions you have before your appointment, um, you know, even logistic kind of things about ordering medication. Um, you can video chat with them if you need help administering the medication. Um, so that's the other component is that it's not just, you know, like getting a loan for these fertility services as you get also continuing care. So it sounds a bit like an insurance policy, but they are not delivering the, the care themselves. They are not doing the IVF treatments. Or no. So they connect you to clinics um, who would be doing that. And so the prices, the pricing does vary depending on where you are, which clinic you're going through, uh, going with, and what exactly you're getting. But they're very flexible. Um, and they, you know... 
they're not doing the actual, you know, treatment, but they're helping connect people to that and helping it be more accessible to them. So it sounds like they're tweaking the financial model a bit and, um, and also providing a little more levels of care that you might not be getting um, from, you know, the clinic is going to help you mm-hmm. as far as their procedures go but they're not going to steer you through the overall process. Yeah, exactly. And they're not going to, you know, um, the, like with, you know, the service, you can text or call your concierge person, you know, 24-7, they're available, um, that service. So it's supposed to, they're looking for more like holistic care. And they the reason they're in the news is because they recently got $10 million in funding. Oh, well. And she said that they want to expand their services, make it, you know, available to more people. Um, including, you know, fertility services for men and for same-sex couples as well. And are they charging consumers directly? Or are they offering this as a, um, you know, as a benefit through employers? What's their model for selling? You you can go to, to, to their website and you there's like an application kind of thing where you can, they check like your credit and stuff like that. You can get mm. approved and then they'll help connect you to clinics. Um, and then from there is where it's, you know, more customizable where, you know, your average, your plan is based on like what services you choose to um, so, go with and how long. So direct to consumer. Yeah. This mm-hmm. uh, this reminds me of a company that um, our uh, our colleague Malia Russell wrote about recently um, that does um, it. I believe it's called Milk Stork. And oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. It actually transports uh, you know breast milk pumped while a, a worker is traveling on business back to. Uh, back to their baby, mm-hmm. and it's often oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it, it's often offered through companies, and I just wonder, you know, a future family might be looking at that. It seems like it might be a great way for them to expand their distribution channels. But right now, it sounds like they're very focused on direct to consumer business. Yeah, exactly. Before we scoot on, I just have one one more note about this company. So, looking at its funding data, because it raised this ten million dollar round, they got it on our radar. They raised it in just about thirteen months after their uh, preceding round. Um, and as a Series A, ten million is traditionally kind of large, not huge by 2018 standards, but it's a sizable amount. And what I found kind of fun, I, I dug a little bit into this, and um, some of its investors are not from kind of major tech hubs, if you will, like Launch Capitals out of New Haven uh, and Anovia Capital, Inovia Capital, maybe is actually out of um, Montreal in Canada. And so it's kind of cool to see this company attract. Uh, a diverse set of investors geographically. Uh, yeah. I have heard of Inovia actually. So you know there are there are these players that are outside of the kind of Sandhill Road orbit, um, and you know I think that uh, you know what startups need to remember is that money is fungible, cash is cash, but it's really about who you get on your board, who's advising you, and um, you know whether they can help grow your business besides just funding it. Right. And that's where you know the board member you get or the the help you get along the way, aside from just cash is what matters. And on that note, Aspect Ventures actually led uh, this Series A. So I presume they'll have the most say in uh, future families' future, if you will, moving forward. So Sophia, who's our third company this week? So our third company to wrap up is T-Cell, which was acquired recently by Rapid7. Um, and they are a website security kind of company where they provide security for web apps that are deployed in the cloud. And Sophia, when you looked at this transaction, what did you notice? Well, from learning from you and Alex, I, you know, my gut is telling me that it was 
um, an acquisition. What, what was the term? Aqua. Aqu- uh, I prefer talent acquisition. Mm-hmm. Other people say aqua hire. Aqua which hire. Just, yes. That, the... that just makes, you know, that just makes my skin crawl. Okay. Like, I was going to say talent acquisition. Talent because, acquisition is better. Um, according to Crunchbase, there are 11 to 50 employees. It's a relatively young company. Um, so that's what it's telling. Or and the, the funding amount, the funding amount was not disclosed. Yes. Not disclosed how much it was, you know, purchased for or acquired for. None of that. And uh, you know, if, you know, if it were a number worth bragging about the, um, the venture capitalists and you know employees and founders would all be wanting to get that number out there. The fact that they're not putting it out there is, you know, sometimes people want to keep these things secret, but I think it's telling when they don't disclose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this case, I mean, T-Cell raised a Series A of $9.4 million, again, kind of in that 9 to $10 million range as before, led by Menlo Ventures, which is a serious VC firm. But it was back in October of 2016, which is about two years ago which is outside the normal 18-month window. So we can kind of presume they were low on cash and looking for an option. So I think AquaHire is the correct uh, view here, which you know you can call a failure, but also it's an exit of a sort. So it's hard to be too mean to, to a small company that just kind of took a shot and only got through one round. Yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley papers over failures with buckets and buckets of cash. <laughs> So, I mean, I'll take $10 billion, but I'll also take the acquire because, you know, Rapid7, who they sold to, is a public company that's worth $1.5 billion. So it's not a bad place to land or end up if you are this company. And public companies have both cash and equity. They can give the investors and founders liquidity. Uh, and Alex, you had done some research on Rapid7. What did you find out about this company? Well, it's, it's really funny we're talking right now because um, for people who don't know, the stock market uh, today, we're actually recording on Wednesday, uh, really took a hit. And so all of these companies that are in the security sector have kind of today come under duress. So I was going to probably talk to notes about how far they've come, but in reality, it's kind of a rough day on the market. Um, but Rapid7, worth about a billion and a half. Uh, trading up around highs, so it's done quite well in the markets, generally speaking. Still an unprofitable company, and uh, we'll hear earnings from them uh, in about two weeks. So it's just kind of a, a, a well-known security shop, a good place for them to land. And, you know, T-Cell will not disappear, but I think they have a safish home uh, looking forward. And I think we might actually hear more about the acquisition when we have those earnings. That might be why they haven't disclosed the numbers yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that might be coming up. So if you are a 10Q or a 10K fan and understand those SEC filings, feel free to take a peek on November 6th. It should be fun. Well, we'll be on the edge of our seats until November 6th. Till then, you can find us here next Monday for another Startups of the Week. Thank you for listening to Startups of the Week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Read more startups coverage at sfchronicle.com. And crunchbase.news. I'm Sophia Kanthara. I'm Owen Thomas. And I'm Alex Wilhelm. And this is Startups of the Week. Startups of the Week. <laughs> oh, you didn't sing the whole show. <laughs> I know. I thought, I thought this was going to be the musical, the Hamilton of podcasts. I, I couldn't hold it in any longer. <laughs>